Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have been working on a big project now for quite some time, and I'm so thrilled that I finally get to share it with you. My newest book, Love Every Day, is now available for pre-order. This book is in a different format than my previous books. So for each date of the year, I offer a short, thought-provoking reflection and or practice that will help you cultivate relational self-awareness so that you can heal and grow all year long. Each daily practice in Love Every Day will help you understand the impact of your past and your partner's past, get your needs met, enhance intimacy, improve communication, and address relationship problems. For those of you who've been a part of my Instagram community for a long time and have been enjoying my short musings on all things relationships, I think this format is really going to resonate for you and create an enhanced version of this experience in a beautiful, giftable book. It even has a fancy little ribbon to keep your place as you read throughout the year. Whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so that you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. If you are ready to embark on a years-long journey of self-reflection and inquiry, this book will be your trusty guide, and I think you're really going to notice how you and your relationships flourish throughout the year as you cultivate this daily practice. I hope you will grab a copy for your own nightstand, for your loved ones, and for your friends. To pre-order the book now, visit the show notes of this episode or go to loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. Hi there, and happy summer. Okay, let's do a little check-in before we dive into today's episode. Today's show is a re-release of a foundational Reimagining Love episode. More on that in just a moment. 
the show is then going to be on a break for two weeks, and we will return on August 22nd for another re-release of an essential solo episode from our catalog. At the end of August, we're going to be back in action, sharing a brand new episode with a very special returning guest, my husband, Todd Solomon. (laughs) I recorded a Reimagining Love episode with Todd a little over a year ago. It was a Toddcast, if you will. It was a lot of fun for the two of us and the Reimagining Love community received the episode very well. So we're going to be back at it. We're going to create another very timely Toddcast. You see, our marriage is at this very moment, booty deep in some serious milestones. Our 50th birthdays, our 25-year wedding anniversary, and we are becoming empty nesters. So our plan is to report to you from the trenches. (laughs) And again, that episode is going to be coming your way on August 29th, which also happens to be our anniversary. I hope that you will tune into all these episodes in the coming weeks and also enjoy some time off for yourself. Okay, back to today. If you're a newer listener of the show, you may not have heard this episode back when we first launched it. It was the second episode ever released, and it's full of essential and foundational lessons for those who are doing the work of relational self-awareness. So I hope you'll stick with me here, whether this is a refresher or a first listen for you. This episode is called How to Invite a Reluctant Partner into Relationship Work. And it's all about this common situation that couples get into. I've gotten questions about it over and over again from therapy clients and students and folks on social media. What do you do when you are ready to have deeper and more meaningful conversations about challenges in your relationship, including dynamics between the two of you, your past, your partner's past, but your partner simply isn't willing or interested or able to go there. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a painful spot for the willing partner, certainly. And if that's you, your desire to have these kinds of conversations likely originates from an unmet need, a wound, a frustration in the relationship. And it can be so invalidating to hear things like, I don't think our problems are that serious or I don't know why we have to talk about my experiences growing up or I don't believe in couples therapy from your partner. It's also, by the way, no walk in the park for the reluctant partner who likely feels as worried about disappointing you as they feel afraid of being vulnerable. So keep listening to hear my thoughts and strategies for couples who are dealing with this dilemma. Let's dive in. So the big framing for this episode is that sameness is not a prerequisite for intimacy. In fact, it is very often the process of sitting side by side with our partner, kind of curiously exploring the nature of our differences that promotes intimacy, like sitting together side by side, trying to figure out how do I process versus how do you process and What are the pros and what are the cons? Like that's intimacy, kind of bridging the spaces between us in order to have deeper understanding. I recently had the privilege of sitting with a couple and they were trying to understand how each of them experiences anxiety, like what anxiety feels like in partner A's body. She's using her face and her body and gesture to try to like capture for her partner, like what anxiety feels like inside of her. And then her partner is like, huh, 
That's interesting because for me, anxiety feels like this. And he's also using his face and his body and his words to try to capture how he experiences anxiety. And they are different, but it was so beautiful to watch that process of each of them kind of inviting each other into each other's worlds. I will say that one of the most confusing differences that a lot of couples have to figure out how to bridge is a difference in relational self-awareness. If you're new to my work, relational self-awareness is really the through line through everything I do. It's what guides my therapy work. It's what guides my writing. It's what guides my teaching. It's what guides how I show up to my 23 plus year marriage with Todd. It's what guides me in my relationships with our kids, with friends, et cetera, et cetera. So what is relational self-awareness? It is this ongoing, curious and compassionate relationship that we have with ourselves that becomes the foundation for a happy and healthy here, we're talking about a happy and healthy intimate partnership. It's that willingness to again and again turn toward and take responsibility for our part of a relationship dynamic. So what I call the golden equation of love is that my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff. So relational self-awareness is that commitment to understanding the my stuff, right? The my stuff, the my part of the equation. How did my family of origin shape what I feel like I can expect, what I feel like I can ask for, the landscape of my triggers and my tender spots based on my gender and my cultural variables like race and socioeconomic status, all of these things that I bring to the table that are uniquely mine and at the very same time become one half of our relational dance, okay? So what we're talking about here is a relational self-awareness discrepancy is when we have one partner who's like all up in it, really ready to dig in and look at, okay, what is my relationship with my mom? How is that bearing on how I'm experiencing you in this moment? And what are the stories I've been told about what I'm allowed to ask for and not allowed to ask for? And how is that fueling my feelings of resentment right now? Where one partner is like really ready to do that. And the other partner is like, what? (laughs) Can't we just decide where we're going to go to dinner? Can't we just move on from that incident? It was just a moment. It was just frustration. So that's what we're going to work on today. What happens when we've got one person who's ready to dive in and another person who is somewhere between hesitant, reluctant, skeptical, and at the very extreme end, contemptuous. So... It's worth saying that intimate partnerships are at-will arrangements, at least in the context of the relationships that I'm dealing with, where we are choosing to be together. And so you're never going to hear me say that people should stay together. They should be in this. So I know that some differences are too painful and they are deal breakers and they are no-goes. I want you to hear me as planting seeds of possibility, as you know I love to do, rather than telling you what you should or shouldn't be doing with your life journey, your wellness journey, your relationship journey. But I want to just at least entertain the possibility that a relational self-awareness discrepancy does not have to be a deal breaker, because I think there are a lot of reasons that people you're in relationship with may be less self-aware than you are. So rather than talking about why somebody isn't relationally self-aware, let's look at some factors 
that might be keeping somebody from developing relational self-awareness? This is a constraint question, especially us relationship therapists. We love to ask constraint questions. So rather than saying, why won't you be introspective? (laughs) We would instead ask, what's keeping you from looking inside of yourself right now? What's keeping you from just taking a deep breath and wondering how your words and your choices and your tone may be part of our problem here? So let me just offer a few hypotheses of what tends to block people from being willing to be relationally self-aware. One big one can be gender role socialization. There's something quite antithetical about how we socialize our boys and our men and then how we want them to show up in intimate relationships. So the research is clear that we touch our little boys less by age three than we touch our little girls. We talk to our little boys less then we talk to our little girls. We are far more likely to tell our little boys to not cry, to man up, to toughen up, to never let them see you sweat. We're much more likely to do that to our little boys than we are to our little girls. Believe me, we give tons of problematic messages to our little girls as well. But we do a lot with little boys and teen boys about invalidating their emotional world, invalidating their full God-given right to a wide experience of emotions from pride to happiness, to joy, to sadness, to fear, to embarrassment, to shame, to anger. And when we cut boys off from the full range of their emotional experiences, and then we wonder why they can't open up to their intimate partner years later, we got to ask ourselves why we're confused in some ways. We end up reaping what we have sown. If we don't offer our boys and our young men tools for understanding their inner world, for valuing their inner world, for developing capacity to contain strong feelings without collapsing without numbing out, without acting out, if we don't give them those skills, then how can we blame them for being unable to open up to an intimate partner, for being unable to sit near an intimate partner in pain? So many times in couples therapy, especially with heterosexual partners, where the moment she starts to tear up, you know, I watch him tense up. Sometimes I even watch him say, please don't cry or don't cry or it's not worth crying or you're having too big of a reaction. I think encoded in that is the profound helplessness of I don't know what to do with your strong feelings because I don't know what to do with my strong feelings. So none of this is an excuse, but it sure as heck is the context for what can make it really challenging and threatening and confusing to be self-reflective, to be emotionally vulnerable, to be emotionally open. Sometimes it's cultural identities. We know through cross-cultural research that in different parts of the world, there are different tolerances for emotional expression. There's some new research that suggests that even emotions are somewhat context-dependent, culturally bound, how we experience emotions, what we do with emotions, what is considered culturally desirable and acceptable around emotions. And so I always, again and again, come back to my location as an American psychologist, as a female psychologist, as a white psychologist. I've been trained to have a particular kind of relationship with emotions. So there are ways that our cultural locations can teach us to either be more or less comfortable with experiencing emotion, with sharing emotion, with bearing witness to somebody else's emotions. 
Family of origin dynamics are huge here as well. If your partner grew up in a family that was perhaps intrusive, where any sign of tenderness was later used against them, I would suspect that your partner learned very early on that you don't share, you don't expose your tender underbelly because it's going to get used against you later. If your partner grew up in a family of origin where there was zero language for emotions, then that is simply not their mother tongue, right? It's not their first language. It's going to be something that they will need to and deserve to learn, but it's going to be making up for lost time because it was not invited or celebrated or understood in their family of origin, what I call their original love classroom. Perhaps in their family of origin, there was a conflation between vulnerability and weakness, right? If they were given messages explicitly or perhaps implicitly that to be sad, to feel embarrassed, to feel confused meant that you were weak. Well, kids do a magnificent, a miraculous job of learning how to adapt. When you're little, adaptation is survival. As Gabor Mate says, little kids learn how to trade authenticity for belonging because to belong is to be able to survive. So perhaps your partner struggles with emotional openness because they learn very early on if they were open and vulnerable and tender and soft, they risked being ostracized. They risked being pushed away by the family. It may also be prior experiences. I want you to keep open this possibility too. Perhaps if your partner has been in earlier relationships, perhaps they hung out in the kiddie pool, in the shallow end, right? Perhaps there wasn't a ton of emotional intimacy as experienced by thoughtful, deep, difficult, rich conversations. So you may have spent a lot of years in therapy or in relationships where there were deeper conversations. And so you're like real comfortable in the deep end of the ocean and splashing among the waves and being deep and being open and putting it all on the table. But for your partner, it may actually just feel confusing that this is a new ask, that they have been hanging out in one part of the pool and now you're asking them to enter a completely different part of the pool. What may be blocking them from opening up is fear. If I let myself feel, I'm not going to be able to stop feeling. It may be, as I've been indicating before, some measure of unhealed trauma, the sense that it's not safe to open. So all I know to do when things feel threatening is shut down. So the irony is the very thing that feels threatening, like therapy, like this podcast, like a book, like emotional support, is the very thing that they may need. So in saying that, I really want to validate that as the willing partner, what you want, the kind of emotional openness that you want, the kind of relationship that values relational self-awareness, what you want, those are things that I really want to celebrate you wanting. I also want to give you some tools for perhaps how you could invite a partner in versus demand them to come in. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. 
I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they are not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. So before we do that, I really want to also ask you, especially if you are the willing partner, to feel your way into a difference between my partner is inexperienced with relational self-awareness versus my partner is contemptuous of relational self-awareness. So I'm going to give you, I may even want you to, if you can, (laughs) you're not driving or walking, close your eyes for a moment and just see if you can feel in your body the difference between my partner is inexperienced with introspection, with relational self-awareness versus my partner is contemptuous. So here's some things that a partner may say that are indicative of or reflective of just a sense of inexperience. Like I haven't been here before. It may sound like this. I'm not sure what you're asking of me right now, but I want to understand. I don't have a ton of language for my experience, but I'm up for trying. I value how you talk about your feelings like this, and I want to get better at that also, but I don't really know how. I want to keep talking like this, even though it's uncomfortable for me. Or this, I appreciate your patience with me because I know that I don't have the same kind of depth of language and experience with the stuff that you have. That set of statements is very different from these. These would be on the contemptuous end of the spectrum. Things like, I don't believe in therapy, to which I always recommend you respond that therapists aren't Santa. So it's really not (laughs) a matter of you believing or not believing, but that's sort of like, I don't believe in therapy. Or if you think I need therapy, this isn't the right relationship for me. Or if we, if you think we need couples therapy, then that means something's really wrong with us and we shouldn't even be together. Those are contemptuous, very fear-loaded, contemptuous kinds of statements. Things like you're too emotional, you're too needy, this is too much. Those are more contemptuous kinds of things to say. What happened in my childhood is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It has no bearing on what's happening between you and I. Your family history, my family history, it's an excuse That's not relevant here. Those are more hardened, harder to work with kinds of fear-driven, contemptuous statements. I'm just sort of giving us like a little bit of a spectrum here of inexperience towards contempt. And I think that depending on where your partner falls on that spectrum, it's going to be either easier or more difficult to kind of invite them into some more openness. But the thing I want to remind you of is that patience isn't foolishness. Patience isn't foolishness. If you've got some glimmers of your partner saying, this is hard for me, but I want to try, I have such respect for people who will hang out in that space of holding your partner's feet to the fire while also practicing patience. There's something very beautiful about that. I think we can start to tell ourselves that we're foolish for doing that, but I I don't see it that way. I want to now talk very explicitly to the willing partner. Okay. Willing partner, 
(laughs) This section may be a little bit challenging for you, but because you're a willing partner, because you are curious to nerdy about relational self-awareness work, I think you can handle it. Just track if you're feeling some rise of defensiveness inside of you as I talk to you in this way. But here's what I want to say. I first want to start by validating you. It is really painful to feel like you are alone in your relationship. And if you're in a relationship where there is a relational self-awareness discrepancy, where you want to be doing emotional work and your partner is shut down, I want to validate the pain in that. Dr. Sue Johnson, who created Emotion-Focused Therapy, talked about how it's not conflict that is so painful for couples. It's that sense that you are screaming into the void, that you're screaming into nothingness. And so if that's what your relational self-awareness discrepancy in your relationship has felt like, I want to honor and reflect that is painful. It's painful to feel alone, like you're the only one who sees that the stuff that's happening between you is big and deep and old and significant. And again, like I said in the beginning, relationships are at will arrangements. So maybe this is not something that can be worked through. There is no arm twisting in this conversation at all. There is just planting seeds of possibility. So I want to also just invite you to consider that sameness is not going to be the goal here. I think you could shrink the relational self-awareness discrepancy and have a beautiful relationship, even if that discrepancy is not shrunk down to zero. Todd and I live with a relational self-awareness discrepancy. He will listen to a podcast episode if I ask him to. He will read something if I ask him to. He has gone, and I'm sure, again, will go to couples therapy with me if I ask him to. It is very likely going to always be me in the driver's seat of that process. What I have to remember is that he is in the driver's seat of other processes in our relationship. He's in the driver's seat around play and pleasure and taking time for us. He takes the lead on all of that stuff and I'm grateful for it. And I tend to be the one who takes the lead on, let's talk about this. There's a problem here. Will you listen to this? Will you reflect on this? So we aren't the same in that way, but he will if I ask. So I want you to just entertain the possibility that could be good enough. I also want you to be thinking about how else you source your needs for emotional intimacy, because I suspect that if there's a relational self-awareness discrepancy, it's in part because you just need more time in that deep end. And maybe your partner can go there with you sometimes, but do you have other swimmers in your life? Who else will kind of unpack a dynamic with you? Who else will have those deeper conversations with you? I want you surrounded by friends, a support community, maybe a group that you're part of, a book club that you're part of, where you can have these kinds of conversations. One of the challenges of modern relationships, you know, many people have talked about how we tend to overburden our intimate relationships these days. We expect a lot of things from one person. So perhaps the discrepancy, the relational self-awareness discrepancy would feel less tender and less urgent if and as you are sourcing emotional depth from other places. My best friend Allie is a deep source of intimate, thoughtful, rich conversation where she can mirror me. She can help me understand myself more. Thank goodness she's there. She spares Todd a lot of those conversations. I have a women's group that I'm part of. So as somebody who needs and values and relishes, obviously, this kind of work, there's a way in which my multiple communities 
spare our marriage from all of that burden and responsibility falling to Todd. So I just want to invite you into that. Okay, here's the hard part. I want to also challenge you a bit around your language. So very often this question comes up as, how do I get my partner to do X? How do I get my partner to read this book? How do I get my partner to go to therapy? That language is problematic because it's the language of control, right? When the bottom line is there's only one person that you will ever have control over and it is yourself. So start to treat that language like a little blinking indicator light inside of your mind that you are trying to exert control over your partner when you say, how do I get him to do that? As my friend Kim likes to say, how full of me to be so full of you. So what's going on inside of you that you're getting very focused on your partner, what they're doing, what they're not doing, when they're saying yes, when they're saying no, why won't they, what's wrong with them, what is going on inside of you? Is there something uncomfortable inside of you that is leading you to kind of focus maybe a bit too much on your partner? And how can we shift from a control, how do I get you to, to an invitation, how do I invite you to? So if you want to change a system, change yourself, I want to just kind of walk through six shifts that I want to encourage you to make. And maybe we're going to go through these six shifts and you're like, nope, I'm good. I got all those down. None of these are an issue for me. But I would invite you to see if there are any of these language shifts that you might need to make. Okay, so I'm going to do six things where it's like, instead of this, try this. Are you ready? Okay, number one is threats. I think threats are a reflection of pain. So again, I'm validating the pain while asking for a shift. So the threat is if you don't listen to this, or if you don't go to therapy, I will you know, be angry, break up with you, say no to something that you want me to do. Instead of the language of threat, I want to challenge you to shift to the language of requests. It would mean a lot to me if you would take this class, listen to this podcast, read this book, agree to do some couples therapy. I think it would be good for us. Side note, you are very likely exactly right that it will be good for you. So I honor and value the urgency and the need, but I want to challenge you instead of a threat, try a request. Okay, number two is a guilt trip. So a guilt trip sounds like this. After all I do for you, this is the least you can do for me. Again, a guilt trip is a reflection of pain. We escalate when we feel unheard, devalued, ignored. So it makes sense that sometimes there's an urge to kind of language it that way. But instead of a guilt trip, I would like you to try an agreement. If you agree to this, I'd be more than happy to try something that you're interested in. If you agree to come to therapy with me, if you agree to listen to this podcast with me, I'd be more than happy to try something that you're interested in, that you value. Okay, three, comparisons. Comparisons sound like this. My friend's partners do stuff like this with them. My sister's husband is going to therapy with her right? That comparison. So rather than a comparison, what if you just stick with a request? I really want us to do this. Comparisons tend to invite defensiveness. Yeah, but your sister and her husband don't blah, blah, blah. So instead of a comparison, try a request. I really want us to do this together. Four, character assassination. Again, another reflection of pain, right? So a character assassination might sound like this. You should want to do this for us. 
a good partner would be willing to do this. So rather than that, rather than a character assassination, try this, appealing to shared values. I know that we both want what's best for our relationship. I know how much you want this to work. Could you appeal to a set of shared values? I know how much we value having fun together. And if we were better able to address some of the problems in our relationship, I got a hunch that we're going to enjoy our good times together even more. Five, assumptions. An assumption sounds like this. You must not love me very much. You must not be invested in our relationship. We know that when we assume, we make an ass out of you and me. (laughs) So rather than an assumption, what about trying an admiration? Something I love about you is that you are willing to step into new experiences, even when you are unsure, especially on behalf of the people that you love. So it's a different route towards that same kind of urgency, right? Something I love about you is that you do stuff, even hard stuff, even uncomfortable stuff, because the people who matter to you matter to you so much. It's a very different kind of appeal. Okay. Number six, judgment. So judgment sounds like this. You are so stubborn, arrogant, rigid, defensive. Instead of a judgment, which clearly we can see how that one is not going to be particularly inviting. What about a curiosity? Could you try curiosity instead? Can you help me understand what's getting in the way? How could I support you? So rather than a judgment, could you get curious? I know it's a big ask. Believe me, I know it's a big ask. If you heard yourself in any of those, the threats, the guilt trips, the comparisons, the character assassinations, the assumptions, or the judgments, I just want to ask you to put a hand on your heart and just breathe in some self-compassion. There is no need to make yourself bad or wrong. We know that shame is a very crappy motivator for change. And this is what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to change. I'm asking you to change your approach, change your tact. I'm letting you know I really value what you're going for. I think your partner should listen to podcasts with you, go to therapy with you. If you want it, if you sense something is amiss, you likely are a sensitive, empathic, intuitive person. So you likely are tracking a lot of really important data. So the request is legit. The desire is legit. You just may do well to work on refining the approach. So hand on your heart, lots and lots of self-compassion if you saw yourself in any of those kind of problematic ways of approaching. And we're just inviting, just inviting new possibilities. All right. I now want to spend some time talking to the reluctant partner. So reluctant partner, hi. (laughs) Here's what I'm so impressed with. You've gotten this far into the episode. Like, look at you. You are listening to this episode. Your partner handed it to you and you put it in your ears and you're listening. So I just want to celebrate that. I want to mark that. I want you to land that inside of yourself, that you are taking a step, that clearly your partner matters to you. The health of your relationship matters to you. And a step is a step. So I really want to just kind of make sure that we mark that. What tends to be true about people who are resistant of relational work, introspective work, emotional work, or who are skeptical about it, who are inexperienced with it, what tends to be the case is that they have been given a set of messages that equates emotions with weakness. I was talking about that earlier. 
So if that's you, if you've got a hunch that the reason you shirk things like therapy, things like podcasts, things like books, things like talking about your relationship, if you have a hunch that you may shirk that stuff because you've been told that emotions are weakness, that vulnerability is weakness, that never let them see you sweat. I just want to validate, you didn't ask for that. You didn't make that stuff up. You were given, right? That is your inheritance. You inherited a set of messages, whether it's from your culture, from gender role socialization, from family that raised you, from prior experiences. You come by that hesitation, that reluctance. You come by it real honestly. I often say that I have never met a coping strategy that I don't have a ton of empathy for. I get it. This shit is hard. This stuff is hard. It makes us uncomfortable. It leads to a flush in our cheeks. It leads our hearts to race sometimes. It leads us to cry. And for people who are not comfortable with crying, it can feel foreign. It can feel dangerous. It can feel risky. But that idea of starting to get your head around, this is actually an inheritance There's a set of beliefs that live inside of me that maybe I didn't ask for and that maybe aren't working particularly well for me. Working on that idea kind of puts a bit of space between what we might call the more authentic you, because my belief is the authentic you has a huge range of emotions, hopes and fears and joys and sadness and tenderness and self-consciousness and shame and pride. All of that is you but you perhaps have been given these messages that kind of narrow or shut down or tighten or render brittle all of the richness of your internal world. So there may be something there for you to grieve that you are carrying stuff that you didn't ask for and that by noticing it as a set of beliefs that you've inherited, you start to put a little wedge of light between those stories and actually what is possible for you. So what I want you to feel, (laughs) what I really would love for you to feel is rather than feeling diminished by emotional work, by hard conversations, I want you to feel proud. You really actually deserve to feel proud of any moment in which you stretch into that like leading edge of discomfort, that leading edge of vulnerability, that leading edge of like letting the tears well up in your eyes even though your first instinct is to shut them down, I really want you to feel proud of that rather than diminished by it. Here's the deal. The research is so freaking clear. Sue Johnson, Dr. Sue Johnson, I mentioned her earlier, even in this episode, she created emotion-focused therapy. And all of her research has shown that if we want to have happy and healthy, intimate relationships, we have got to value these three things. We've got to value accessibility, responsiveness, and engagement. We have to do the work inside of ourselves so that our partners feel like we are accessible, meaning they can reach us. That if they need us, they can reach us. If they've got a problem, we will pause what we're doing and address the problem. That we are reachable and available. Our partners need to feel like we are responsive. That when they're hurting, we will respond to them, not turn away from them. That when they're celebrating, that we will celebrate with them. That we are willing to lean into their emotional state, whatever that is. So accessibility, responsiveness, and then engagement, right? To feel engaged, to feel like we are in this together, that there is a back and forth, that we are kind of side by side 
not just enjoying the good stuff, but side by side when something challenging happens. Because I tell you what, it's not the challenges that are the problem. It's what we do in the face of the challenges that becomes potentially problematic. And that's what relational self-awareness work is designed to do. It's designed to create more capacity inside of ourselves to be able to stay present to our own emotions, whatever those are, and to stay present to our partner's emotions, whatever those are. Relationships take work. I mean, think about your own family that you grew up in. Did you get the tools that you needed to handle differences of opinion, to handle strong emotions, to handle disagreements? to handle competing needs and interests. I mean, some of us did, perhaps you did. More likely, you grew up watching grown people do the best they could, likely lack a robust set of tools for handling all of the ebbs and flows of relationship. And so I just want to normalize that the vast majority of us need to spend time learning, just learning, just having practice, working on language, different ways of saying things, understanding how emotions work, understanding how communication works. I just want to normalize that, that you have stuff to learn, not because you're bad, not because you're broken, not because you're deficient, but because you're human. So I'm hoping that earlier in the episode when we were talking about those different constraints, that you were really noticing which of those constraints were true for you so that you can start to understand what for you makes this work so challenging. I want to also say that you get to be a skeptic. If you become a regular listener to Reimagining Love, which my goodness, I hope that you do, you get to be skeptical. You get to listen to an episode and then say to your partner, I don't know, babe, when Alexandra was talking about this whole thing, it didn't make sense to me. It didn't land for me. I didn't even agree with it. You get to be skeptical. As you're consuming articles or books or podcast content, or when you're in therapy, You don't just have to become a yes person, just smiling and nodding along with all of this. You get to engage, right? The point of this content is that you engage with it because it's as much when you hit up against a moment of rub, there's learning in that also. You get to be skeptical and you get to be willing rather than excited. I was talking about Todd before. I don't know that Todd is ever excited (laughs) about listening to something that I want him to listen to. He is willing. And willing gets to be good enough. I mean, I am excited about this stuff. (laughs) You can tell. This lights me up. You don't have to become like this in order to do the things you need to do to have the skills you need to have a close, healthy, robust, intimate partnership. You don't need to ever be excited about it. You just need to be willing. So I think there can be a lot of permission there. I have a very dear girlfriend. I love her to the ends of the earth. When I talk about my women's circle that I've been part of for eight years, like she literally, like you can watch her body. It's almost like she's like almost gagging. Like she's so uncomfortable. She would never in a million years join a women's circle ever. But do I love her? Yes. Is she a blast to be with? Yes. Do I turn to her with my tender stuff? Yes. Because she meets my emotionality with some rationality, which I love, and she is willing to be vulnerable as well in her own way. So we don't have to be the same in this work in order to be valuable, to be lovable, and to be worthy. You also get to be the follow, right? As I was talking to your partner earlier, I was wanting your partner to get their head around the fact that when you are the more willing partner, when you are the more relationally self-aware, nerdy partner, you're likely going to be the one in the driver's seat. 
That's okay. So now to you, the reluctant partner, I want to say, you get to be in the passenger seat. That's okay. And the more you are willing, the more your partner will be comfortable in the driver's seat. So it's a back and forth. The more that you can show, okay, babe, I'll listen. Or, hey, I listened and these are some of the thoughts I had. The more you do that, the more ease and comfort your partner will feel being in the driver's seat, right? The driver's seat is only exhausting if you have to keep convincing the person in the passenger seat that they should listen, that they should go to therapy, that they should do this work. It's much easier to be in the driver's seat when you have a willing passenger. And then the last point I want to make to you, reluctant partner, whom I so appreciate that you're here and listening, is I would love the idea of you saying to your partner, if I have issues with how this is going, what's going to help you take it less personally? And what's going to help you hear them as criticisms or critiques versus cutoffs? So here's what I'm imagining. I'm imagining that the two of you have listened to this episode And then you want to go to your partner and say, I love this. This makes sense. But this other part didn't land for me. I don't want your partner to get in a huff. Like, see, like you didn't even try because disagreeing with content is not the same as devaluing content. So you might want to just preview to your partner. Okay. I listened to the episode. There were three things I loved and three things I didn't love. What's going to help you hear both of them? Because you deserve to be authentic in your feedback without your partner taking that as, here we go again. You didn't even try, right? Because you did try. In fact, disagreeing with content, pushing back against parts of it, that is actually trying. That means you actually did engage. So you may just want to preview to your partner, like, listen, I will listen and I will listen with open ears and I may even take a note or two but I may not agree with all of it. And so how do you want that feedback? How can we talk about it in a way that holds the fact that I may have some complicated responses? In conclusion, (laughs) we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Let's just go through some takeaways. The takeaways of this conversation of this episode are relational self-awareness discrepancies are common and they're complicated. In the best case scenario, relational self-awareness discrepancy is something to be navigated with a blend of acceptance and requests for change. In the worst case scenario, a relational self-awareness discrepancy ends up being a deal breaker. And that difference between a challenge and a deal breaker has to do with the difference between being inexperienced or being skeptical on the one hand and being contemptuous on the other hand. And the more A partner can be honest about their inexperience, honest about their skepticism, the more it invites their willing, excited partner to be patient and to remember that patience is not foolishness. I talked a bit to the willing partner and I reminded the willing partner to be self-reflective about the meanings that they attach to the discrepancy. What do you make it mean about you that you have partnered with somebody who's not as relationally self-aware as you are? What do you make it mean about your partner? And then rather than using the language of how can I get you to listen to a podcast, go to therapy, we worked on six kinds of transformations, right? Moving from a guilt trip to a request, all of those. And then I talked directly with a reluctant partner. I validated and normalized that relationships take work and that if your partner is sensing that there are challenges, that there are problems that you guys would benefit 
from being able to more easily have conversations, I want you to lean into that. I want you to trust their sensitivity and their intuition around this. And I want to just say that it's understandable if you internalize the idea that self-reflection is a sign of weakness and you get to feel proud, not diminished for making a choice that reflects your investment in this relationship, because that's what it is. To commit to practicing relational self-awareness is to convey to yourself and your partner that this relationship matters. We matter. You get to be willing. The bar does not need to be excitement. It can just be willingness. And you can own your skepticism and keep working on your skepticism so that your skepticism does not feel to your partner like it's a statement of your degree of investment in the relationship. So that skepticism can be there, but you can keep also working on it so that your skepticism kind of melts into openness and willingness to start to practice this as a way of life. I want you and your partner to always be triangulating in resources, bringing in resources. Intimate relationships are hard and we all benefit from resources that we can bring in that help us remember why we're making this investment and help us remember how to make this investment. So thank you very much for joining me today in this conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this solo episode. Whether you are the willing partner or the reluctant partner, I hope you come away with some tools for navigating a relational self-awareness discrepancy. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.